Hello and welcome to episode 60 of the Nerd Culture Podcast. Where we're not travelling in time. No. She loves you, yeah, yeah, yeah. Last episode you guys were very excited about this episode. Is, is it? Is it the excitement paid off? Two weeks later you're now like, holy crap. No, 60. don't worry. The disappointment has set in. No, I just feel old now. Oh. Yeah, look old. <laughs> 60. It took you too long to say that. <laughs> <laughs> Any romance gone in that pause. We're almost at retirement age. My name is David, and with me, the NCP crew, Richo. Still disappointed we're not travelling in time. Luke. <laughs> Will you still need me? Will you still feed me when I'm 60? Wait. Hang on. You're four episodes off. <laughs> we don't need feed you yet. Okay, yeah. See, yeah, there are tiny teddies this episode. What's up with that? We're lucky to get a hello, let alone food. <laughs> and Crystal. Hello. There you go, you got one. All right. Exactly. Yeah, I feel wanted and loved and appreciated. Okay, so for this huge episode 60, we've got a dust jacket on The Quantum Thief by Hanu Rajanami. Huge. Huge, as chosen by Luke. Uh, and our top five rogue slash anti-heroes. And yes, I know they're not the same thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, we'll get to, but we'll get to that in our segment. Um, and uh, we also have a video game review with myself and Bioshock Infinite. Huge! <laughs> they just being silly. <laughs> Uh, so, as uh, as standard uh, for the dust jacket, uh, we'll go to Richo and then Richo can pass on to Luke. Nope. Today, that's it. I'm just handing over the cape, the Captain Dust Jacket undies, the <laughs> Captain Dust Jacket chest symbol and mask. Mm -hmm. And I think I need a hood. I think it's time I updated to a new 52 and it, style and, armor or and something. And like a uh, short leather jacket that the X Men were wearing. Oh, the bomber jacket. The bomber jacket. The 90s. That's right. It's time to move into 90s Captain Dust Jacket. Mm -hmm. Where I'm suddenly going to get all grim and gritty and carry a gun or something, I don't know. And, and, just, and, and lots of belt pouches. Oh, I've got to have belt pouches. And shoulder pads. I think <laughs> I need big, whopping great shoulder pads. <laughs> so we're going to weigh Luke down pretty heavily with this new Captain Dust Jacket outfit that we've got. Let me just take all, take all that that you've just given me. Let me soak it in this convenient bucket of petroleum. <laughs> <laughs> Let me get out my handy-dandy flamethrower. And everyone take five paces back. <laughs> You know, that's very 90s of you to burn your costume with a flamethrower. That's it. It's also very 90s for all the evil spirits to leave the costume and flee for evil safety. Evil spirits. God. But, to cut a long story short, <laughs> I'm handing it over to Luke. It's all yours. Um, okay, The Quantum Thief is Hannah Rajanimi's debut novel. Um, he's since published uh, a follow-up, The Fractal Prince. Um, this was published back in 2010, and it was sort of on everyone's lips as being, you know, the the next big thing, as in Hanuman Rajanimi is quite clearly a, a talent on the rise when he starts publishing on a more regular schedule. Um, this it comes, uh, follows the story of Jean Le Flambert, um, a gentleman thief who's imprisoned in a prison where the prison, in attempts to rehabilitate its, um, its inhabitants, actually sets them on moral war games in an attempt to, to, play, to play nice together in an attempt to rehabilitate them by using teamwork and cooperation. He is busted out by Melee um, and her spaceship, the Pahonan, to take to get um, to get uh, Jean Le Flambert um, back to Mars, where they are going to steal the last thing that he tried to get before um, he was imprisoned. The problem is, 
Lafonbert is having a few uh, mind difficulties, a few memory difficulties, let, let me say, and is having trouble remembering exactly what he did um, in the le- and elements of his own life in the le- in the in the lead up to his eventual incarceration in the um, in the prison. At this, at the same time, on Mars, you have Detective is it, you have Detective Isadore wandering around Mars, trying to work out what what Le, what Le is up to, and working out how exactly he's going to stop him. There are, of course, other things around this as well as the conspiracy involving um, the Tzatziki, the uh, sort of Victorian era um, superheroes or costume vigilantes of um, of Mars. Uh, and uh, the upper, uh, the the Joker, the upper echelons of society as well. To give away too much of the plot, though, is to um, to give away it, it is to sort of do do a disservice, and it'll be giving away a lot of the revelations and then a lot of the mystery that happens. Um, I really like this novel. I like Lafonbo as a character. I like the difference between you know his casual flippancy to the dark seriousness that he has, and his own inability to um, remember. Plus, the moral stance that he realizes that he must take. At the end, which is a symbol of you know a lot of anti-heroes and rogues that you know, they've got to come to that point where they must make a, a right or a wrong choice. I uh, like Amelie, the um, the the um, the person trying to run him, and her the uh, the internal um, division she's got with the memories of her um, her her lover from influencing her. The relationship they all have with the ship Bohonan, who seems to be trying to be playing both sides <laughs> against the middle in an attempt to get its own its own way, but the really Really strong aspect of this is the fabulous world that Rajanemi, I think, creates. He's not one of those people who um, describes in great detail. He likes to say things like um, spider cab, use titles like spider cabs of Archon, or one word phrase that can set your imagination on fire and, you know, let, whilst giving you enough information, letting you do your own work to, to create the world that he builds in his head. He's trying to create a sort of a belle epoque. He's influenced by. Maurice LeBlanc's Arsene Lupin stories, and he's trying to create a sort of a Moulin Rouge Belle Epoque period um, France for um, his for his Martian setting, um, and it's fabulous. It's um, old and new at the same time. It never feel it never feels nostalgic. It never feels so high tech that it's unrelatable, um, and I think that's really its um, its key feature: the world building that um, Roger Nimi does. Plus, also yeah, so the revelations that that occur as to Laflambeau's character and the revelation as to what's actually going on involving um, the Zaziki, the Zoka, and our main characters themselves. It plays with reality a bit. Mm. What is real, what is not real. Yeah, the, and the jumping up or backwards in times, is that is what's happening, still yeah. happening now, Is it, yep. um, or is it in the past itself? Who is, and there are questions about who Jean Laflambeau is, yep. um, even the ones that he has about himself as well, because pe- pe- people recognise him as different things. Mm. It's, I think there's probably a couple of times in the book where his um, sparsity of language or economy of language is probably a little too sparse to begin with. Mm-hmm. There, are, there are a couple of moments, especially early on in the book, where he's using terminology without any real explanation of what that terminology Spot is. Spot on. And it does take a while for you to actually pick up on what some of the, the concept that he's trying to, to deal with. Um, once you do pick up on those, um, I agree with you, it is fantastic, and I agree that the world building is amazing, and this book is one of those books which is just absolutely packed mm. with interesting ideas. Yep. There are moments there where I did feel a little lost, though, because I wasn't quite sure. Um, the introduction of Isidore, I think, um, is one of those moments. Yeah. 
Yeah, so th there are a couple of moments where he's just a little bit too sparse in explaining things to me, and it does take a while to really grasp some of these concepts. Um, and if, if there is a flaw, I think, in the plotting, it's um, the Lafleur staff gets straight into the action, but the Isadora side, it takes him a little while to actually get into... But I actually must admit, there were a lot of times in the book where I was actually more interested in Isidore than I was in in, in Jean, because yeah. Jean, Jean is you know is your is, is your, your gentleman thief as you yeah. described him, which sort of slots him into a certain uh, I guess not stereotype, but certainly archetype character. There's, there's certain expectations for that yeah. sort of character. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Isidore is actually, um, I think, probably the more interesting character, certainly to begin with. Hmm. Um, Jean becomes a bit more interesting when you actually start to find out his backstory and that you begin to see that he's not quite the, the character that he is presented as. But yeah, I must admit, certainly early on, I was actually probably, as, as far as character work goes, I was more drawn to Isidore. Yes. While I agree that, uh, that, that some of the terminology was a bit tough to start with, I actually didn't mind that. I sort of, I glossed over that because I sort of got the gist of what was going on and realised that as you got deeper into this world, you were work out what was going on so I didn't mind that at all um, I did have a bit of a problem well not necessarily a problem when in, when Isidore was introduced I pictured him as an older man and it's not until later on you find out that he's actually only 10 Martian years old which is about 18 so he's really still a teenager mm. so but I pictured him as more of a uh, Philip Marlowe kind of character yeah an older really. detective but um, I actually disagree on the introduction of Isidore I because we're sort of flying about doing different things and then we sort of slow down a little bit and get into a, a mystery story. Oh, this is quite nice. Um, but just was, a, bit of a, a bit of a pace change, that's all. Mm. I didn't mind that at all. So for me it was more some of the concepts of Mars though because that, that's actually your introduction to Mars mm. um, and to the culture of Mars. Yeah. And he uses terms that aren't actually defined yeah. um, until sort of later on. Um, especially when Jean gets to Mars. Mm. Yeah. And so there was a little bit there where I'm just, I'm reading the words and I'm thinking, I'm just reading words here. Yeah, but um, the way the, he the terms it is you can kind of get the idea, like the, how do you pronounce it? Je vlot. Uh, the Geovolt. Oh, the mind Yeah, it's the, way, the way he puts that into a sentence, you sort of get the idea mm. that it's something to do with the mind and they can control people's perceptions of themselves. Mm. But there's a lot of that, like there's, uh, no, it's not just one term, there's yeah. about 12 or 13 terms I mm. think that he uses just in those first few pages yeah. mm. that aren't really defined. Yeah. That, that's actually one of the better defined I guess I'm just yeah. used to that from mm. cyberpunky kind of novels. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. That, that, I'm used to that as well, the whole, yeah. you, we're not gonna, we don't need to explain this term because we're trying yeah. to capture the sense that these people are living here at the time. Yeah. And if you read William Gibson, you get that a lot. Sometimes it's yeah. yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm with Richard. I, I, yeah. I, and I'm glad I wasn't the first person to say it. There's, there's quite a lot of, as much as I enjoyed this book, and I did. Mm. I mean, there's so many awesome ideas mm. in this in this story, and it just moves along at an awesome clip. And I'm, I'm handing out for part two, yeah. uh, which is rare, yeah. um, especially for a modern modern novel. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with Richard. There's just, I'm, I'm all for new words. And interesting usage of existing words, mm. um, like Geovolt, uh, for example, is actually a Hebrew word, yeah. um, and that's cool. But at at some points, I was actually thinking, all right, as long as, and like Christmas is like, I can get the gist of what's going on here, yeah? but sometimes I need a little bit, just a little bit of explanation, yeah, just so I can enjoy it a bit more. So I'm not sending, I'm, so I'm not spending five minutes reading a paragraph thinking, well, what does this actually yeah, mean? It, it's when you throw like 
five of them into one sentence. Yeah, or, that's exactly that's, right. That's there is a sentence. I, 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 don't actually, I, I mean, the good thing is... I thought can... I had it written down, but I don't. But there's actually a sentence that has three uh, three words. Yeah. Three new words yeah. in one sentence. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what does this sentence mean? Yeah. I had to look it up. There two. are criticisms on the internet that say it perhaps should have had a glossary or something in the back. Yeah, that's... Oh, oh, oh yeah. There is actually... There is actually but a... That can, non- that can take you out of the story a little bit. Though. There's a yeah, non-official glossary. Um, there was one on Wikipedia, but it's been taken off. But there is one at... Um, KarenGill.com. Um, I'll put the link link on the on the show notes. But actually, there yeah, there is a glossary for it, and I'm not ashamed. I I, I had to use it for <laughs> some of the words. Um, I mean, I agree that Geovolt is explained pretty well in the story yeah. itself about yeah. what exactly is it you're doing here. But there is quite a other uh, quite a lot of other stuffs that are just like. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, but I, I like it in that that they use it in everyday language. Mm-hmm. So we're walking and talking along, like talking about iPods and um, downloads and internet. And if you went back even thirty years in time, nobody would understand what the hell you're talking about. And you don't stop and explain it every five seconds. That's a yeah, cool. That's, that's a cool that's point. That's the point that I was trying to get to yeah. earlier on. That that you know it shows that these are people who are living in the world, and yeah. you know. True, but, <laughs> the world around but at the same them. time, yeah. at the same time, um, I take the point you're about. This saying. is not the real world. It's yeah. a novel. Yeah. Um, and I mean, on a, on a positive note, he does. Yeah. Once you sort of, you know, you then move on a bit and you get more into the novel, you do get pretty much everything in the end. Yeah. But yeah. it can be a little bit disorienting at first when you're not. You're just reading words, basically. Sure. Yeah. yeah. It can be a bit jarring. Having said that, I'd rather take you know some minor con- minor confusion. Yeah. Um, and a little bit of uh, uncertainty over reams and re- pages and pages of awesomeness. Uh, yeah, the, 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 you know, it, of explanation. It, yeah. Of explanation. You know, yeah. he doesn't. He doesn't yeah. stop to explain, and that's good. I want to get into the story, and he does. And yeah. you know, like I said, the world he creates is fabulous. Lord Formos is a great yes. character. The, the revelations are awesome. Yeah. The party scene where yeah. Laflamba and Isadora actually meet. Is magnificent, yeah. And he writes the action very well too. It doesn't come yeah. across as being, you know, um, over overtly detailed. It's very much this is what we need to know to get us to the rest of the story. And I like the fact that in those action scenes, Laflamme is not, you know, a brilliant fighter or anything. He has to rely yeah. a lot on um, yeah. uh, Mealy to get him out. Yeah. Um, he also writes, I think, emotion very well. He does. Like I, I really understood the emotion. Of each and every one of these characters at pretty much at every point. Mm. This is magnificent. Yeah, this is. I've one. got to see this on the big screen. And I had a similar thing with um, what really is the, I, I guess, the Mars Justice League yep. <laughs> yeah. in this book, especially the gentleman. Yep. Yeah, the gentleman is just fantastic. But um, yeah, the, the 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 Martian Justice League uh, and the way the the way he presents those characters with just enough detail to give you a, a rough visual image that you can then fill in the gaps in. Yeah. I think and can you just imagine seeing the moving Mars City? Yeah. On the screen? I, I, I was they going, this is a combination of Los Angeles 2015 with Baz Luhrmann's Moulin Rouge. Yeah. Uh, this, I'm with you. This sort of this, this dark but crazily ne- the, you know, neon lights flashing everywhere and a slight yeah. sense of unreality to what was going on. It's very few authors actually able to that we go, Oh my god! I so want to see that. I want to make this film. Did you did you picture any of the characters as any actors? Uh, bits and pieces all around the shop. I, I pictured at certain points Robert Downey Jr. being Lord Flambeau with Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch being um, Isadora. Yeah. Um, 
I must admit, I did. Uh, there was a moment there where I actually thought of you, Dave, while I was reading it, which was the um, the gamer society. The gamer society. So I knew, I knew someone was, society so was going to pull this, yeah. bring but this, this up. This whole society that exists basically are effectively an extension of um, World of Warcraft into an actual culture, into yeah. an actual society. They were they were formerly a guild on yeah. a, on a. It's never World of Warcraft's not mentioned, but that's but that's pretty much where they were going. <laughs> This is one thing that slightly niggled me, and I'm, I'm bracing myself for a round of groans here. So <laughs> they, they've ignited Phobos mm -hmm. for a light source and heat. So mm -hmm. Obviously, that's how they've terraformed Mars. But they, they talk about the light of Phobos and how it moves across the sky. And whatnot. They never talk about the sun as a secondary light source. So what's happened to Sol? They do kind of suggest that there is something as like without actually telling you, they do suggest that something is happening. Yeah, I thought yeah. Sol's dimmed. They yeah. do. They do. They talk about night and day, and Phobos is the source yeah, of day, yeah, but yeah. they never talk about Sol. And if Sol's gone, Mars can't exist. <laughs> I don't think Sol's gone. I think Sol's just dimmed. There's the hint that they're also using light from possibly Earth and the Moon as well. Yeah. 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 Um, when they're they're in orbit, they can you know absorb the the heat. I mean, it, 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 I don't know why you're saying grunge because you know having erosion. Oh, because every time I pick a a, a sciencey nitpicky thing, I get the oh, God, yeah. But he's a scientist. Just a movie. Yeah, he's, That's he's, okay. It's, it's, it wasn't quite a nerd rage sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 no, but he's actually a scientist himself. Uh, practically, yeah. he's a particle physicist, I think, yeah. um, himself. So he's going to try and make this as. Um, Grounded as he possibly yeah. can mm -hmm. um, in science, so that's it's not a nitpick at all. That's a, yeah. yeah. So this, I mean, as much as I love like this book, I, I mean, I, it, I must say that it's the story itself um, that got me. So it's just, I mean, just the ideas behind it and and uh, just how enjoyable it is. Mm. Um, there is, I mean, uh, yeah, the the nitpicking, I suppose, would be that the, the things that stop it from being a perfect book are the the words, yeah, the, and um, and I just think just some of the some of the writing could have been. Tied up a bit more. Yeah, I mean, writing's not his first job, mm. and you can sort of see that mm. um, it does have sort of first bookitis. Yeah. Um, but other than that, my God, mm. what a debut! Mm. Is is English his first language? He write, He says he actually does write in English. He's mm. um, Hanarajanimi is Finnish, mm. um, but yeah, and he first, does write in English. Yeah. There, there are a couple of moments there where it does feel like um, sort of translated into English versions of like other stories that I've read. Yeah. Where the, the language just just seems. Doesn't quite have, I guess, the right timber and flow to it that a, that well, a native he's, speaking. He's quite fluent in English, but um, mm. uh, you know, where we speak, when that sort of an everyday slang, he might have mm. a slightly more formal mm. sensibility. Okay. Rankings then. What would um, you rate this book? Um, I think this is a breath of fresh air in modern science fiction. It's nice to actually read uh, an inventive SF book for a change, as opposed to you know military or um, dull space opera and things like that. I would give this book for Luke's. Crystal? I agree with Luke. I actually, when I first started reading it, I thought it was older. I was surprised to find out it was actually a more modern one. And I had no problem with the the words. That's <laughs> 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 why I was trying to think of a better term. But that's because you're smarter than us, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, on the other hand, I have no problem with a little bit of exposition as well. I mean, exposition can be done well, but I didn't think this book needed it. Mm. Um, and yeah, the only really niggly pit I had, as I said, was the, the sun thing. Um, oh, <laughs> At least there wasn't an exploded moon. I, <laughs> <laughs> that would have got, really, got you started. Yeah, well, Phobos said it, they said it had ignited. They didn't say it exploded. So that's, yeah. <laughs> um, that's it. Um, I enjoyed this book right from the very first word. Mm. Uh, I 
I was fascinated with the mathematical concepts as well as the reality concepts, etc. I give this book 4.75 looks. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, that's going to mess up the, the averaging. Well, it's not foundation level of awesome. Ah, right. We'll figure it out. Would you wear a chocolate dress? That's right at the start, what? his very first case is a chocolate the dress. Chocolate oh, dress. that's right. Yeah. I'm thinking that's a bit of a non sequitur. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. That's fair enough. Yeah, I, I, I've, I've said everything I, I need to say. It's, it's, it's awesome, and uh, I highly recommend it. I give it four looks. Yeah, fantastic book. As Luke said, breath of fresh air. Thoroughly enjoyed it. I'm going to give it three and a half. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for suggesting that look. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's, it's one of those ones that's been on my um, bookshelf for um, ages, and I wanted to get to it. So thank mm. you for actually letting me get to it. Yeah, finally. Um, so it has been brought to brought to our attention that um, by a couple of listeners, and uh, thank you very much. Is that these these particular listeners want to follow along with our reviews, um, but quite often it'll be it's a book that they haven't actually read themselves, and that's awesome. The fact that they they feel strongly enough to want to want to follow along with our review and, and sort of and so they'll they'll know what we're talking about. So to that end, uh, at the end of each uh, dash jacket, we're we're going to announce what our next book is going to be. Um, so we actually we all we always knew what our next book was going to be, but I just never mentioned it just in case something came up or something like that. So we're gonna we're gonna stick to our guns and be disciplined, and we'll, the next book that the, the book that we announce is going to be the book that we're going to read. So um, in our next jacket, Dust Jacket, which will be episode 62, we're actually going to be covering Richo's pick, uh, Hyperion. By Dan Simmons. Correct. Um, so there you go. So if you haven't read Hyperion yet, you've got a month to read it. And you'll need it. And you'll need it. <laughs> it's like, huge. Quite a complex and long book. What is it, like 900 pages or something? Okay, it's not quite that bad. What's that 500. 500. But it's quite a go. complex 500 pages. Yeah, it's, it's very small type. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, so uh, check it out. So we're all looking forward to that. We've, I've read it before, but I'm looking forward to reading it again. As, and, sort of, and as part of that, um, I just want to point out that uh, one of our listeners uh, was so enamoured by our Anubis Gates review that he's now going to read that on his holiday break in uh, Fiji or wherever it is that he's gone. So Fantastic. somebody is reading the Anubis Gates on the beaches of Fiji. Let, let because us of know us. what you think of it. Yeah, that'd be like awesome. Write in or Skype, Skype. in or, and yeah. let us know what you think of the book because we'd yeah. love to hear. That would be awesome. That was awesome. Coming up next, we've got our top five rogue slash anti-heroes. Okay, so it's been a while since we've done a top five. I've always liked our top five segments. Uh, our top five rogues slash anti-heroes. Yeah, I was, just, I, I was inspired for this top five because of... Um, uh, John Laflambert. Yeah, because he, he, was, he was the ultimate rogue. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he's pretty cool. Everybody loves their rogues. Um, now, even though I know that rogues and anti-heroes are not the same thing. That's right. They can be. They, yes, they can, they can be. That's true. But uh, to, um, they are traditionally lumped together in the same, in the mm. same category. Um, and uh, they, are, they are clearly defined different things, but I just thought it'd be, make it easy to put them both together. Plus, uh, it'll give it, it'll give Richard a chance. Uh, to say uh, <laughs> a rogue can be an anti-hero, but an anti-hero doesn't necessarily have to be a rogue. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Rogues, rogues, admit, rogues are a bit more a, a bit more heroic than anti-heroes. And, and I must uh, admit, in, in doing my list, I stuck entirely to anti-heroes. Yes, I know. Uh, rather than rogues, because of that, we've got some very interesting lists. Um, it was actually. Only three that were double ups. 
rest of them were singles. So okay. we've, got a, we've got a few to get through. Mm. There's quite a lot of... There's no honorary mentions because they all made the top five. Right. So that's pretty impressive stuff. Um, yeah, so yeah, everybody knows sort of the rogue, sort of the Robin Hoodish sort of character. Um, the the anti-hero is defined as someone who rejects tradition and old values and is usually frustrated and or isolated and not only lacks hero, heroism but opposes it. That's not the Oxford English Dictionary definition. Um, the, Ox <laughs> the Oxford English Dictionary definition is an anti-hero <laughs> is a protagonist who lacks the attributes that make a heroic figure nobility, mind and spirit, a life or attitude marked by actual purpose and the like. Coming up at number five... Uh, we had Michael Corleone from The Godfather, uh, Gregory House from the House TV show, and John Constantine, or Constantine. Constantine. Teen. <laughs> I'm just, you know, I'm, just, I'm covering all the bases. <laughs> oh, uh, you've so become paranoid about Michael, that. Michael, yeah, I just, I know, because you picked up me the last episode, man. I'll say. Uh, I'm still hurt. Two weeks later, dude, the wounds Aww. cut deep. Uh, anyway, so, Michael, that was yours. Yeah, I chose Michael Corleone because, first of all, The Godfather is one of the absolute most magnificent films ever made. But uh, for me, he's actually the textbook anti-hero. He's, he's trying to... He starts off trying to do the right thing, and, um, you know, he doesn't want to get involved in everything that is going on with his family and with their history as mobsters. But, uh, as he, you know, so famously says, every time he tries... You know, he tries to get out, they pull him back in again. And at the end, he actually does emerge as the new Godfather. I'm absolutely fascinated by him as a character. I'm fascinated by his story. But at the end, he doesn't actually emerge as the hero in any way. He emerges as basically the, the mobster. He's become everything that he, that he fought so hard against. Mm. Gregory House, that was yours, Crystal. House, just... Briefly, uh, my favourite attribute of House is uh, he does not suffer fools gladly. Mm. In fact, he won't suffer fools. Just pull stop there. He does not suffer <laughs> fools. Um, he's not afraid to be grumpy. It's just like my throw throwback to the last episode. Is, <laughs> is it okay to be crabby? <laughs> um, and it's just, he can be a very mean and nasty person, yet somehow still likable. So that's that's the definition of rogue, isn't it? Mm. I guess House is a rogue. Yeah. Uh, Luke, uh, you and I both chose John. Yep. I actually sort of came to John comes in a lot more recently, I think, than you did, through uh, suddenly the Unmore um, Swamp Thing run, and then now onto Hellblade, the Hellblazer trade they've been releasing of late. The fabulous thing about him is that he uses everybody up, every, everyone around him friends, foes, demons, monsters. Really, anyone to hand to serve his own ends and to make sure that um, no matter what, he comes out on top. Yeah. There is a, you know, a, he has a, a, a slight smattering for the greater good, but if the greater good conflicts with what he wants, yeah. then the greater good will go to hell, which it has, literally, on many occasions, <laughs> um, um, to ensure that he gets what he deserves. He's a, actually quite a layered character because there's a part of him that, that wants to do the good thing and do right by certainly the certainly the, the put upon and the little the, people yeah the downtrodden the downtrodden but at the same time you get him um using all the sorcerer effectively killing all the sorcerers <laughs> in an attempt to use all their energy to get um something into hell and back yeah um combined with turning all three sides of the devil against himself in an attempt to save his soul so that when he dies of cancer he doesn't go to hell <laughs> Yeah, that's a very textbook definition. Self-motivated, in no way noble, um, but very clever, and let's face it, he's cool. 
he is cool. It's it's just very lucky that his ultimate goodness mm. benefits from mankind because, yes. for, because <laughs> it's just it's just it's like you said, it's lucky. I mean, he as long as he comes up on top, mm. he tries to do the good thing. Yeah. Whereas he, you know, and becomes you know the hero of the piece. Yeah. Uh, it's just lucky that he is wants to be good thing because mm. he starts as, if he ever decides he wants to do bad things. Mm. We're in a bit of trouble. Yep. And uh, and the storyline, I believe, it's called Bad Habits. With the, that you mentioned with the dangerous, dangerous habits. Oh, da- yeah, dangerous habits with the three with the three devils. Mm. It's absolutely brilliant. Yes. And was yeah. my introduction to the character, and mm. I was just like, oh my god. <laughs> I read the story quite, quite recently when they did the current trade. Yeah. Um, having heard all this hype. Yeah. And you know when things get hyped, the the they run the risk of the story suffering. Um, but no, absolutely. So. Absolutely, why everyone raves about it. Constantine is awesome in it. Yeah, um, and his cleverness comes to the fore. And uh, unlike you, I actually like the film. <laughs> I hate the film. <laughs> well, there you go. In I fact, do, really actually quite enjoy. It. Me hate the film even more. That's true. Yeah. Uh, coming up at number four, we've got Edmund Blackadder, Dave Lister from Red Dwarf, and Sam Spade. From Red Dwarf, so we don't have to say we're Black Adder or Sam yeah, well, we, Speed. Well, we don't need. Come on, we don't need to Everybody say we're Black Adder. Everybody who listens to the show knows that. <laughs> and Sam Spade. If you don't know who Sam Spade is, I, I pity you. Um, but you're about if to you find out know, anyway. If you don't know who Sam Spade is, go and rent the Maltese Falcon <laughs> right now. Uh, so Edmund Black Adder. So uh, you and I both had Edmund. Why did you choose him? Yes, he was stuck in my brain after our Black Adder episode. But our uh, epic Black Adder. He, he is. Uh, Talk talk about erudite witticisms. I just I love, I love the language in Blackadder. Uh, I love how he's only out for himself, but somehow it's just, what happens ends up for the greater good anyway. Yeah, I agree. I agree with everything you said. Uh, <laughs> and you also chose Dave Lister. Dave Lister, because I'm a big Red Dwarf fan, and uh, Dave Lister's just an ordinary, everyday, slobby guy, but it somehow manages to. Uh, triumphant in each episode <laughs> <laughs> so. well, and I'm sorry I, I quite like the character as well mm. would you call him an anti-hero though Cause he no he's a rogue no I was oh, thinking more of a rogue okay. because um, yeah he, he, he's, he's not a, he's not a, a goody two shoes he, he doesn't mind a bit, a bit of drinking and gambling and <laughs> making fun of Rima <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but um, not someone I'd like to live with I don't think but he's, he's a likeable guy <laughs> He's a good person deep down. Yes. And, uh, and shamefully, Richo didn't choose Sam Spade. But Luke did. Yes. Um, <laughs> one of the hard-boiled guys had to make it on here, and it's either yeah. Sam Spade or um, Mike Hammer, because Marlowe's actually a good guy. Um, but even Hammer has his moments where you know, he really responds and you know gets into the case because of an emotional connection. Whereas Spade is an absolute scumbag right yeah. from the outset. You know, he's yeah. sleeping <laughs> with his partner's wife. He attempts to frame others implicate <laughs> yes, others at every conceivable opportunity um, in the Maltese Falcon both the book written by Dashiell Hammett and the, the classic film not the two before the classic film directed by John Huston there are no moral qualms to this guy whatsoever you know if you put him in a bad situation he's going to you know make sure he does what he can to get himself out and implicate everyone in the process the, at the end of the story there is you do get justification as to why he's done what he's done um, his partner Miles, Miles Archer has been um, murdered at the start of the story, but then you get his wonderful little speech. You know, a man, when a man's partner is murdered, the man's supposed to do something about it. Doesn't matter if he doesn't like the guy, he's still expected to do something about it, which explains why 
but at the same time, it still doesn't give him any kind of moral justification no, for what he's remotely. done. Um, he, he, Sam Spade's, you know, one of the greatest characters of the 20th century, um, and yeah, he that's one of the reasons why he was actually quite up quite so high on my list. He is awesome. Coming in at number three, we have Gene Hunt from Life on Mars, uh, Gully Foyle from the brilliant Stars by Destination, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Kerr Avon from Blake Seven, <laughs> and V from V for Vendor. So, Gene Hunt, that was Crystals. Gene Hunt, uh, the only quote that comes to mind I can't say on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Gene Hunt from Life on Mars. I don't know how many of you guys have seen Life on Mars. He's he's just, he's your typical 70s cop, like Sweeney style cop. uh, You know, likes to get things done and doesn't worry about procedure, whereas uh, Sam Tyler, who's from the future, comes back, is very procedure orientated. But Gene's just as uh, hard nosed cop that just wants the best for everyone but thinks he has to do the bad things to get that to, that to happen and the, I think the thing I like most about Gene Hunt is the accent the slag the funny thing about that is he's played by um, Philip Lannister who mm. you know not a physically handsome man in any shape, way shape or form but because <laughs> of Gene Hunt yeah. He became a bit of a sex symbol. Yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. kind of weird, isn't it? <laughs> Women like the bastards. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the quote I was going to go with. You're surrounded by bastards. You can take bastards. Can you? Yeah, I'm cool with that, why not? Really? Yeah. <laughs> Freeze, you're surrounded by armed bastards. <laughs> no one said that. <laughs> Gully Foyle. <laughs> Luke. Okay, um, first of all, you know, readers will remember the, uh, the controversy you know, amongst the crew members about... Um, our review of the stars of my destinations. Yes. Um, I, rem- I maintain that it is a work of genius and my second favorite novel of all time. Yeah. Um, and but if we're doing <laughs> if we're doing antiheroes and rogues, Gully Foyle's got to go on this. He's a murderer, a rapist. He's a monster. He's an absolute. <laughs> he's an absolute monster. And does, uh, like a lot of <laughs> like a lot of what the characters we've talked about here, really only out for himself. The only thing that sort of saves him is maybe a realization at the end that can't quite go on that keep up his own self, his own um, revenge story at the expense of the wider universe in which he exists in, because if the, the powers that we have their way, he himself is going to be screwed, so he's got to do his utmost Yeah, but it's to... cool that that's the last page, though. It is cool. It is Every cool. page before that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the page is where he's a monster. <laughs> um, yeah, fl- uh, but also dichotomy starts off being yeah. um, quite uh, low-key borderline autism or borderline Asperger's but you know, manages to actually rise up, kind of Monte Cristo style, and become quite yeah. erudite, flamboyant, complex, <laughs> repulsive, but interesting. He becomes a rogue. Have you noticed that? Oh, yeah. I was gonna so say, he's an anti-hero who becomes a rogue. No, he does not, because he does not become likable in any way. <laughs> he does. Absolutely he does. Hang on, we've had this argument before. <laughs> anyway, let's move on before somebody gets upset. Uh, Kurt Avon from Blake 7. Yeah, there's an amazing thing that happens when you're watching Blake 7. First of all, it starts off, it's kind of like a, almost like an anti-Star Trek. The universe is crap. Everybody in it is not very nice and everything. Um, but what's amazing is, as you're watching the show, first of all, Kerr Avon just becomes the, the main character. Mm. He becomes the character that just dominates every scene he's in. He's the character you love, you know, and you love to hate him because he's manipulative, he's nasty, he can be slimy when he needs to be. But the great thing about him is he is a complete and total um, reflection of the universe that he lives in. Um, He basically is the Blake 7 universe in human form, and that's what I love about him. He is a 
fantastic anti-hero. Cool. And you and I both picked V. Yes. Um, who I just think is an amazing character. I mean, the, the film version, they kind of they kind of make him a bit more likeable. Mm-hmm. But the, the original comic version, um, he's just not likeable at all. I mean, it's just, well, he's, he's, he just does, he does, he does what he has to do to, for revenge mm-hmm. and uh, nothing's going to stand in his way. But not that, just that, to um, take a person as, as his protege. Yeah. And not, you know, to train him Batman Robin style, but to brainwash her, break her down. Uh, torture her. Torture her. Yeah. Imprison her. Imprison her. So, I mean, all for, for her greater good, I mean, she becomes a more rounded person mm-hmm. later on. But the, the horrors that he inflicts on her, well, outrageous. What's amazing about V is he's actually doing the right thing. He's trying to bring down a fascist government. Yeah. But the way he goes about it is just... And, and for he's the, a terrorist. And for the, the wrong reasons as well. He's not trying to bring down the bad government because they're a bad government. He's, trying to bring, he's bringing them down because they created him and made him the monster that he is. True, but then there's also that slightly, you know, he, he wants to bring anarchy in its purest form. Yeah. Um, you know, basically self, you know, self-government where you actually have no need for people to tell you what to do. So, so there is still that spark of doing the right thing, but the, the, every single thing he does to achieve <laughs> that goal is actually quite horrible, but at the same time fascinating. Yeah. And given that you never find out who he actually mm. is, like who, what his actual identity is. Coming in at number two, we had a, another four-way. This is unbelievable. Uh, Travis Bickle from Taxi Driver. Uh, Robin Hood from... Robin Hood, uh, <laughs> Alan Shaw, <laughs> and Han Solo. So Travis Buchel, that was Richo. Yeah. Um, once again, Taxi Driver, absolutely brilliant. Wait a minute, are you talking to me? <laughs> you know that scene was completely improvised. Yes, I heard. He was it. just told to stand in front of the mirror. We and... studied that from an art school. Yeah, yeah. He was just told to stand in front of the mirror and. Talk to himself, and that's what he came up with, and has become obviously one of the most iconic lines in cinema. But what I find amazing about Taxi Driver is that um, Travis Bickle is a totally despicable person. He's a complete nutcase. Um, the things he does to people just—you uh, don't half the time you have no idea why he's doing it, but in his mind, it just makes perfect sense. Yeah. You know, when he takes his potential girlfriend um, on a date to a porn film, and you know, I mean, he's just a totally just completely, like, crazy, sociopathic person. Yet he also emerges at the end of the film as a hero. <laughs> which is just bizarre. And that goes on to the other words, which is, you know, despicable, unlikable, sociopathic, and an entire generation of males all want to be. <laughs> I know, it's, just, it's amazing. And so he crazy. emerges as the hero of the story, whilst not being in any way likeable. And just, just amazing stuff. Amazing and Amazing performance as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Luke, you had Robin Hood. This guy, okay, we're talking the ultimate rogue here. Yeah. Um, you know, dashing, flamboyant, ha 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 ha, depending on the version, depending on which version. Um, the Daffy Duck version. Looks good in tights. Yeah. Oh, Errol Flynn. Errol away. But in no way shape is he an anti-hero. He is an absolute rogue in his purest forms. And even almost by definition, he's a rogue. You know, he's yeah. actually reacting against uh, the government of, uh, or the, the monarchy of his, the government of mm. his of his day. You know, they're mm. doing something wrong. I'm going to fight against that. Mm. Um, and help the know, downtrodden. And help, and help the downtrodden. But it's also the um, the light and the wit in which he does it. You know, some of the stories are quite dark, but um, you know, some of the stories are also quite light and quite funny. Um, and it just depends really on your interpretation, or as it, the story has been interpreted through the ages. But um, Robin Hood has will always remain. You know. The one, the guy who would always want to be the the cool guy who stands up for what's right mm-hmm. and for what's just, mm-hmm. 
um, when no one else will. And it, 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 it's an, on a, it actually starts off as an anti-hero, it should be pointed out. In the yeah. Legends. It starts off not, you know, wanting to, you know, rob the rich to give to the poor. That's an Elizabethan yeah. attribute. It actually starts off being quite an unlikable guy yeah. um, who just, people resonated with because he was actually, you know, still fighting the system in certain respects. and raging against the system. Yeah, that's right. He, machine. <laughs> he fought the power. <laughs> so he's another, you know, anti-hero to rogue type. Uh, Crystal, you had Alan Shaw. Alan Shaw is a likeable character who does despicable things for good purposes, and he justifies this because he's a lawyer, and that's what lawyers do. <laughs> it's an extremely intelligent person and often finds things well outside the box to to achieve his ends. Usually the ends may not be the right thing to do um, generally but they're the right thing to do for that person that he's helping. Mm. Encouraging a, um, uh, a defendant to flee because the case is going so badly. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> yes. and, well, and the defendant is innocent. Mm. I think he ultimately believes in justice and the greater good but he doesn't mind doing anything it takes to actually get there in the long run. In his own words, he's a hoot. <laughs> it's got to be pointed out he's played by James Spader. That's, that's <laughs> <laughs> well, James Spader, the um, sexual deviant, in pretty much every film he's in except Stargate. <laughs> pretty well. He just plays that character he just so plays well. That guy. It's kind of weird. <laughs> he's not afraid to be sleazy. Uh, no. I mean, I'm not sure that's an aspect of the character that I quite like, but. <laughs> But uh, and the uh, I have to. It's not really relevant to the rogue anti-hero discussion, but I do enjoy the Alan Shaw Denny Crane relationship. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> the other number two we had was Han Solo, who's uh, I'm the only person to have Han Solo on the list, which I think is despicable. Um, to me, Han Solo is the rogue of of my childhood. I mean, he's basically the my generation's Robin Hood, and uh, I just. He just is a person, the, the perfect personification of it. He doesn't. He's he's only in it for himself. He's only in it for the credits. More than you can imagine, sweetheart. And <laughs> but it still comes in to save the day when needed. And to me, he was bas- he was basically the ideal of heroism. So I didn't look up to Superman as a kid. I, look, I looked up to Han Solo. <laughs> yeah, that explains a lot. <laughs> <laughs> it does explain a lot. I'll just say that I, he actually was the first person to pop into my mind. But I figured everybody else would choose him. <laughs> Oh, well, there you go. Well, See? Had I done rogues, he would have made it on the list, but I, I stuck with anti-heroes just yeah, fair to enough. sort of spark conversation. So he would have been higher in the list. but uh, As then, opposed to being number two. Number two. <laughs> it's, it's pretty good. Oh, so, no. yeah, so Hansel, the and man. He first. <laughs> the man. And Hansel did shoot first. He clearly. In my, in my world, he shot So that's first. the thing. Hansel would shoot first, and that's, <laughs> that was what was so awesome about it, which, which explains so much about me. So then we come to number one. So there's uh, by a clear win... Number one, the man with no name. Now, absolute legend, <laughs> as played by Clint Eastwood, and presently, as Richo pointed out, interchangeable with a whole bunch of yeah. other characters. Honestly, I my when I first wrote my list, I actually just put Clint Eastwood. Yeah, <laughs> because he's just the <laughs> ultimate anti-hero actor. You know, whether it's the man with no name, the stranger in High Plains Drifter, um, William Money in Unforgiven, uh, Dirty Harry. I could say Fox's alias in Back to the Future 3. Yeah, exactly. Um, You know, Dirty Harry. They're they're all great anti-heroes. But, you know, in the end I went with the man with no name because he's awesome. (laughs) Which is ironic because he's actually got three names in all of them, but they're not actually, you know, solid names. In in official dollars, it's Joe. Yeah. 
in For Fear of More, it's Manco, and in The Good, Bad, The Ugly, it's uh, Blondie. Yeah. So he's not given, you know, because people say, oh no, he's got names at all of them. Well, no, he doesn't. He just gets called nicknames. <laughs> yeah. And things like that. So he actually, we actually don't get a proper name from him. So he is the man with no name. Biggest, one of the greatest anti-heroes ever created. At no point does he ever really do anything other than for himself, even though he is the good and the good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, it's, it's amazing how not good the good is. <laughs> I love the shot that he used in this table, which is the ugly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's awesome. He's iconic. He gets one of the greatest shootouts ever, and he remains nothing but irrevocably cool. He, he basically, I think, represents to so many people what an anti-hero is. Mm. He's become the, the defining anti-hero character. And he's awesome. <laughs> and he's awesome. That's basically the defining word, because he's awesome. Um, so there you go. There's our top five rogues and anti-heroes. Uh, if you uh, agree, disagree, if you have your own top five, you want to eat anybody that we missed. And there's plenty that we missed. There's plenty that aren't on here. You had a list um, of about 20 to begin with. Yeah, yeah. It took a while to narrow them all down. One, that, one uh, list that I read online had Alex from A Clockwork Orange on there, which... Yeah? I don't know. Nah. Anti-hero, maybe. Excellent. Not even anti-hero. He's just scum. Anyway, but anyway, that's, that's, yeah. that's a conversation for another day. Uh, so there's our top five. Let us know any thoughts you have on yours, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Coming up next, Bioshock Infinite. do uh, game reviews on NCP because we leave that to our uh, good friends over at the Black Panel. But I recently completed the game Bioshock Infinite uh, on Xbox 360. And I have a bit of I have a bit of a history of the Bioshock universe. Um, I actually I reviewed one and two on the Black Panel and was also uh, part of the episode where they first announced Bioshock Infinite. And I was quite dismissive. Um, I, I mean I loved one and two. Uh, I think two is actually better than one, but I think they're both brilliant. Um, and must must plays by you know every every gamer. But when they announced Bioshock Infinite, it's uh, they announced that it was going to be in a new setting, and I was quite dismissive of it. Uh, in fact, uh, this is what I said: Bioshock Infinite coming to 360 PS3 and PC in 2012. Your thoughts? Yeah, I might actually buy it. Yeah, I, <laughs> I mean, I've got to totally disagree. I think it's absolutely pointless. Number two was the pointless one. That no. was actually just I'm rehashing no, the same concepts and the same gameplay. This one is actually different. This one is actually yeah. worthy of a sequel, extending upon the interesting storyline that was brought forth by the first one, not just rehashing old news. I'm sorry, Karen, I wasn't listening. Can you repeat that? <laughs> <laughs> he is flip-flopping worse than the politician. One minute you love it, next minute you hate it, next minute you love it, now you don't want it anymore. You don't understand. They call him the fish. <laughs> <laughs> Right, okay, right, so, it sounds right. right <laughs> Gotta love the Kaz. So as uh, as you as you can see, um, I wasn't uh, I wasn't too fond of it. Uh, but as usual, I was proven wrong. 
And, uh, <laughs> I'm glad you finally admitted that. <laughs> You're never wrong. No, well, that's true. Bioshock Infinite, um, like I said, just I just recently finished it, and it's magnificent, um, and is definitely a vital part of the trilogy. Um, you're going to get, a, get a, a lot of me talking here because the guys, no, nobody else in the crew has actually played it. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't play video games, sorry. <laughs> but uh, Crystal did actually watch me uh, play through it, so she might have something to say, hopefully. Uh, so, yeah, so like I said, it, it is, it's the third part of the Bioshock trilogy. Um, the first two games are set in the underwater city of uh, Rapture. Uh, but Infinite is set in a city in the sky, uh, which is held aloft by a very interesting mix of technology, but basically anti-gravity. So it's whole buildings that are that are in the sky with a mixture of balloons and anti-gravity it's very technology. Steampunk. It's it's absolutely magnificent. It's, it's fascinating. It has a, a completely different feel than it does for the first two. The first two, like because they're under the under the sea and the city has basically gone to crap. It's all very dark and wet and dingy and all that sort of stuff. Whereas this is up in the sky, so there's you know, it's all you know the clouds and stuff like that. And when you first arrive uh, in the city, it's teeming with people like people were actually living there and, and going about their daily lives unlike you know the zombie type mutants of, of the first two games um, and it's not until a certain a certain event happens that um, there's any violence at all so it's actually so it's a first person shooter like the first two but it's until a specific event happens which i'll get to in a second it's you're actually just walking around finding stuff so the story is basically you, you play you play the character booker dewitt uh who is sent to this city uh to find a, a young girl named Elizabeth and it's it's a motif that runs throughout the entire game whereas he's, he's told to bring us the girl and wipe off the debt. Can I just say that right from the start David picked the thing. Yes, <laughs> the thing. Uh, David picked the thing, that's going to be the motto. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, Booker's had a bit of a tr- has a bit of a troubled past. He was part of the military and was present at uh, Wounded Knee, uh, which is the the massacre of Wounded Knee uh, with the between the army and the Indians, um, and it's affected him. It's scarred him, and he's now he's then gone on to work with the Pinkertons, which as much as I love the Pinkertons, and Richard is also a big fan. When they first appeared, they weren't very nice people. <laughs> so they weren't the business that they are today. They were pretty <laughs> horrible. Um, so, so he, and eventually he leaves them as well because he just can't just stand the violence anymore. Um, but he's, he's horribly in debt and he's told by this mysterious figure, these two mysterious figures, male and uh, female, that, you know, uh, bring us the girl and wipe off the debt. Um, so he goes to, this, goes to the city to, to find her and he eventually does. And the, the girl is Elizabeth and uh, he rescues her. She's actually imprisoned in a, a tower so like a princess, she's a princess in a tower, and he goes and rescues her. He's going to take her back to New York, uh, but she thinks they're going, to, they're going to go to Paris. And then during the course of the game, as games are wont to do, um, things keep getting in the way of them eventually reaching their destination. That's just the basic premise of the story. Um, is incredibly rich in details, and I don't, I don't want to give away uh, too much of it because it'll reveal certain you know, plot twists within the game itself. Other than Elizabeth has a an ability. Um, so she, uh, because of an event that you find out later on in the end of the game, she has the ability to open rifts in space and time and travel through them if if, if required. There's this awesome moment where you're traveling through to, th- traveling through all these rifts and you go back to Rapture, which is brilliant. My it reaction, I was like, yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> Only for a brief moment, but still, it's awesome. The way these rifts are done in the game is just magnificent. And it, it, uh, you'll be walking along and there'll be a rift 
and through the rift you'll be able to see certain things and also hear certain things. Um, so her ability of being, is being uh, manipulated by the guy who runs, who built and run this city called Comstock. Um, so he knows all about her abilities and he's manipulating her in order to help himself and his uh, companions. One of his companions is a, is a musician and he uses the riffs to hear songs from alternate dimensions and then make old oldie type versions of them which one of them is a um a barbershop quartet version of the beach boys song god only knows which is magnificent um he also does uh girls just want to have fun <laughs> and everybody wants to rule the world by tears and fears so just awesome awesome stuff it and you find out later that that's what he's been doing. But, I mean, everybody just thinks he's a musical genius, but really he's just been ripping off <laughs> Alternate Dimensions, which is just awesome. But the story is still magnificent, and it really touched me emotionally. The, the reason I wanted to review this game is because um, of just the experience that I had while I was playing it. I got emotionally attached to Elizabeth, which is amazing to me. So I got uh, emotionally... I mean, Booker I didn't really care that much about because he's a bit of a prick. But Elizabeth was so well realized as a character not only in terms of gameplay she wasn't like that annoying she's see she's ai controlled and she wasn't like those annoying ai controlled people that get in the way you're like you're trying to shoot enemies and suddenly they'll just appear and you're like what are you doing and you know she actually she would hire whenever there was any action she has this she has this awesome ability to find stuff for you the most popular one being she finds money for you she goes here i found a coin and it cuts to a, a little scene where she flips the coin to you and you catch it out of the air and you go much obliged Thanks. much obliged she um, has the most animated face too when you cut to anybody else in in the game their faces are quite stiff and and generic generic and, and yeah. really don't look very human but she she does she's amazing yeah in her ability to emote i got, I got so emotionally attached to her mainly because as it turns out, I, as I rightly guessed at the start, I'm calling spoiler, uh, but she's actually my daughter. So she's Booker's daughter. And once I realized that, I just, there was no going back for me. I, was, I just, I had to keep her safe. I had to get her out of the tower. I had to protect her at all costs. Um, and that's, so that, that came to a head uh, at the moment where she is kidnapped. So I've already, I've already gotten her out of the tower. We're trying to get her escape. We've already been foiled, foiled in our, our attempt to go to Paris. Um, but we're now being chased around the city, and the city's just gone to crap. I'm trying to protect her, but she gets kidnapped by Comstock's men and taken back to the base of the tower. Now, I'm normally I'm normally quite a cautious player. I mean, I like to hide and take only the shots that I, I need to take so I can conserve ammo, and, you know, I'm a big fan of the headshot, and it's like, boom, headshot, that sort of stuff. In the face. In the face. One guy shot in the genitals by accident, and his reaction was priceless um anyway but uh so normally i'm quite cautious and i'm, I'm quite quite careful about it and but this sequence because i got so i got so attached to her when she got kidnapped i was devastated and not and not the character the character in the game was but i was as well and all that went out the window i was i there was no caution there was no conserving anybody that got him away i blew them away without hesitation innocent civilians i didn't care it didn't make any difference i basically charged like a bull and that amazes me, my reaction. I actually got quite upset. And during that sequence where you're trying to chase after her, you pass, you pass rifts, and the rifts are showing what's been going on. So it actually takes, in, my, in game time, it only takes a couple of minutes before I eventually find her again. But in the game's mythology, it takes about nine months. And in one of the other universes, you don't find her at all. So 
during this time, she's being brainwashed and tortured by Comstock and his scientists uh, in order to become Comstock's heir. And you eventually meet up with her again. And, and I was so upset that she, every time I pass one of these riffs, she's calling out to me. He's like, Booker, Booker, come get me. And they're like, and the scientists are all giving her crap. It's like, do you really expect this guy to show up? It's been six months now. And it's oh, I won't give up. And, and it really, really affected me. And it got, when it gets to the scene where you actually finally get her and she's got all the scientists around her that are torturing her, I took actual pleasure in killing them because they were hurting her. And that to me is amazing. Um, this, this game affected me so much more than uh, Heavy Rain did, which I thought was an amazing testament um, to games and sort of at more adult, mature games. It's magnificent stuff. That being said, it's not a perfect game. There is a couple of things, just like all games, there are a couple of things that they need to do in order to uh, keep you on track. Otherwise, who knows what you're going to do. It's not GTA. Um, so it is quite linear at times. There's certain areas that you can't go, and it's kind of annoying. It's like, why have it there if you can't go there? It's pretty annoying. And towards the end of the game, it really comes becomes nothing more than an interactive cutscene movie. Really, is all it is. I mean, you, there's no the, after the final battle, you then basically learn basically everything that's been happening during the story. So you have learned the end and all the secrets. And really, all you're doing is just it's just you and Elizabeth walking around, and you're just pressing X every now and again into all the action stuff. At first, I found that incredibly frustrating. I was like, this is actually this is a game. This is not a movie. And as much as I enjoyed the revelations, just sitting there pressing X is not for me a game, unless you're playing Mario. <laughs> so. so but then there is actually a, there's a specific scene where uh, I, I, I kind of changed my mind about it because she reveals the secret of the lighthouse. Now, I'm not going to reveal it here, um, but for any players of Bioshock will know the lighthouse. So every, every Bioshock game starts with a lighthouse and ends with a lighthouse. Um, and she eventually, Elizabeth eventually reveals this secret, finally. And <laughs> Booker actually says, no, one's in, no one controls me, I, I do what I want. Which is hilarious because... I'm controlling Booker. Booker doesn't control anything that he does. And now all I'm doing is pressing X and, and I am actually in total control of Booker. I just found that sort of a, a fascinating sort of philosophy, um, an interesting thing to sort of say. And so I sort of, I, I kind of let it go. And then of course you had the big reveal at the end. Um, the only other thing that, that just frustrated the hell out of me was that none of the windows could break. So I'm in this building that has got these huge bay windows and there's enemies shooting at me from outside. I'm standing right behind a window. And none of the windows are breaking or cracking or anything like that. And they're firing rockets for crying out loud. And it's not until I actually move into the line of fire that actually anything interacts. It's just, it's, I found that incredibly frustrating. It's just, I mean, it just took out some of the realism to me. But anyway, nitpicking. This is a magnificent game. Uh, I highly recommend it. It caused a bit of controversy. Uh, the main, the main uh, antagonist, Comstock, um, is incredibly religious and the whole the whole game is the, basically the themes are freedom and religion and uh quite a lot of people got quite upset about their basically thought the portrayal of comstock meant that religion equals bad um and i can see that i can see that what their, their argument um i don't agree with it but i can see definitely see how they come to that idea it's it's definitely it's a it's a game that stirs debate and uh i highly recommend it i i give this game a 4.5 out of 5 it's magnificent Next up, coming soon. Coming soon to Australian cinemas on October 3rd, we get Gravity. This looks awesome. Could be interesting. Sandra Bullock. 
Who would have thought? The one scene that they show you in the uh, trailer looks quite good. <laughs> I know, which, but that's pretty cool, isn't it? At least it doesn't ruin the whole film for you. Yeah. Um, the whole film condensed into the trailer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Rush, which is uh, Australia's own Chris Hemsworth, playing a F1 driver. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't really care. It's Chris Hemsworth, so that's exciting. But other than that. Uh, and Machete Kills. Yes, <laughs> Machete Kills. Which awesome. is uh, Machete Kills. They should have called it Machete Don't Text. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to Machete Kills. And, of course, Machete Kills again. Yeah. <laughs> the sequel that, the sequel that they promised. Machete Kills Deader. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's actually coming, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Then the following week on October 10th, we get Two Guns. So Denzel Washington and Mark Wahlberg. Ooh, got that late. Um, mm. Yeah, which is pretty weird, but looks pretty cool. Uh, Haunts, which is just a your typical haunted house movie. Don't really care. And Naomi Watts as Diana. Yeah, no. Yeah, pass. I'll be giving that one a miss. Good casting choice, though. Yeah, she. Lo- I mean, she looks like her. Yeah. Pretty impressive. So let's finish up. Don't forget, you can contact us by email at feedback at nerdculturepodcast.com or post on our Facebook wall at www.facebook.com forward slash nerdculturepodcast I almost got through that <laughs> or tweet us at at nerdculturecast or you can leave a comment on any post on our website at www.nerdculturepodcast.com and don't forget you can also rate and review us on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast and our new uh, latest feature as, review, as mentioned last episode uh, you can contact us on Skype. So if you have any feedback or you have a question for the crew or is anything you want to get off your chest, contact us on Skype. And uh, if we like it, we'll play it on the show. Okay, that's it for me and the rest of the crew. Richo. That's it for me as well. Luke. Yeah, I've still got a little bit of juice left. And Crystal. In the face. <laughs> a little bit of juice left in the face. <laughs> Gold. <laughs> you people are shockers. I didn't mean it that way. Hey, you're the one that went there, not us. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs>